0: Alzheimer's or normal aging dementia? How do we know? You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is forensic neuropsychologist, Dr. Robert Heilbrunner. Dr. Heilbrunner is an assistant clinical professor of psychology and behavioral sciences at Northwestern University Medical School in Chicago, Illinois. He specializes in forensic neuropsychology as well as clinical neuropsychology and is a member of the Board of Directors of the American Academy of Neuropsychology and chairs its Practice Guidelines Working Group. He's the Consulting Neuropsychologist to the Chicago Blackhawks hockey team. Today we are discussing the role of the neuropsychologist in the diagnosis and management of dementia. Welcome, Dr. Heilbrenner. Thanks so much for joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: I am getting up in ages, and I'll tell you that those moments, we call them, I think, senior moments. I try to think it's just that I'm so busy, I can't remember why I went into the closet. But I'd like to discuss with you a bit about the normal aging process and subsequently the development of dementia.
1: The sad fact of life is our brain atrophies as we get older, just like every other uh, system in our body. And I think there's even research to suggest that uh, physiologically, That our brains really start to deteriorate beginning in our early 30s. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to show signs and symptoms of decline in the 30s. Uh, They really don't manifest more until the 40s, uh, and that's why the age corrections don't really begin until the 40s. But, you know, the brain does start to decline in various and predictable ways with just the normal aging process. And I'm sure our listeners who are getting up in years would Echo the sentiment that they just don't remember things as well as they used to, or their speed of thinking is not as quick. And certainly, the areas of memory and processing speed, those are really two of the most primary areas that are affected just with normal aging alone.
0: So, you see differences in the aging process and loss of functioning of different areas of the brain at different ages or different rates. Does that come out in your work in neuropsychology?
1: Yes, it does. And that's as a result of the deterioration in very specific parts of the brain. That may occur more rapidly or are more likely to manifest clinically. So, the memory, as I said before, that's usually the number one complaint which uh, older individuals have. And when they see their general practitioner, they may exclaim to him or her, You know, I'm just not remembering things well. I misplace things or I forget appointments. And, you know, the astute physician will say, You know what? Some of these are are common with aging, but let's have you see a neuropsychologist and get tested. And more and more, physicians are savvy to this issue of age-related cognitive decline and want to send their patients to someone such as myself to really see whether this is due to aging or is it portend the development of a dementia? And is it a treatable condition? Is the older adult perhaps depressed and is that causing some of the cognitive thinking difficulties?
0: When you say treatment, is it treating the comorbidities or actually treating the underlying process?
1: Well, it may be both. Certainly, if the individual is Depressed and depression does occur with some degree of frequency in the elderly due to the losses and, and a reduction in functional activities. So if it's due to depression, certainly you want some kind of intervention, usually pharmacologic for depression or, or anxiety. More specifically, there are medications now that are being used to address the symptoms of dementia. Uh, and I don't consider myself an expert in by any means in psychopharmacology, but my understanding of the literature is that you know most of these agents may hold off the progression of the symptoms for a time, but certainly if somebody has a dementia, especially Alzheimer's disease, it's a progressive deterioration, so the medication is not going to stop it. It may delay it briefly, but that's about the best that you can expect with those kinds of agents.
0: Let's talk a bit about Alzheimer's disease. How does the neuropsychologist get involved, and how does what you learn about the patient differ from what may be picked up on a radiologic imaging study?
1: Certainly, there are cases of individuals with very clear Alzheimer's disease who are quite demented who may have a normal CT scan or MRI scan. So the radiologic studies are really not always the best in terms of diagnosing uh, Alzheimer's disease. Although having said that, when one's doing a workup to uh, assess the possibility of Alzheimer's, one needs to be comprehensive and do neuropsychological testing, neurologic exam, blood work, as well as radiologic studies. But the value of, of neuropsychology is really in the fact that we have, through years of research with a variety of patient populations, very reliable and established patterns of impairment that tend to occur with normal aging and that are different from a pattern that occurs with Alzheimer's disease or a Parkinson's dementia. So the testing that we do is comprehensive. It's much more extensive than a very brief mental status exam that a physician, neurologist may give. And we can look at these patterns of performance and make a determination in the context of other available information as to whether or not this person is showing signs and symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, or is it just due to normal aging? Finally, as an example, one of the hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease is disproportionate memory impairment characterized by a rapid forgetting of information. So somebody with Alzheimer's disease, you can tell him or her things many times over, and they're just never going to remember it because of the way the disease process works, the memory isn't going to get stored in the brain. So if you ask them later on, they're not going to remember because it never got stored or hardwired into the brain. Now, that's versus a a type of actually the normal aging process where the individual may have to be told things several times, but it gets into the brain. And later on, when you ask them to recall it, they may have initial difficulty, but if you provide them with some cues, they're going to be able to remember it because the information did get stored in the brain, which is very different from the type of impairment we see with Alzheimer's disease. I'd
0: like to pause for a moment to welcome those who may have just joined us at the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and I'm speaking with Dr. Robert Heilbrunner. We are discussing the various forms of memory impairment and dementia. We've heard a lot about plasticity of the nervous system, and you talked about things getting into the brain. Are there biochemical, structural correlates? Is there a possibility for remodeling and making new connections?
1: I hope that there is (laughs) now that I'm getting older, but it may be too late for people like me who are my age. You know, that's a whole area of subspecialty that's beyond my expertise. And as you might expect, there are are various drug companies and scientists that are examining that. The fact is the brain is most, quote-unquote, plastic or can continue to form uh, new connections and growth at an early age but typically stops as we get older but perhaps some of these newer agents might help to form new connections and to facilitate memory recovery in individuals with dementia
0: have you found any good memory games things that work i mean i go to medical meetings and there are these sort of psychics that are there and they do these demo shows and i mean they're really quite fascinating but is there anything such as if i wanted to train myself to increase memory or even you know a young child in school They have so much they have to learn so quickly. Are there ways of really training your memory?
1: I think that there are. And uh, with all due respect to those people who are developing these kinds of things, uh, it's quite clear to me as a professional who's been working in this uh, area for about 20 years that the best that we can really do is to have the person institute effective compensatory strategies, i.e. if they have a very real memory problem, you know, memory isn't like a muscle that can be retrained. So you want to incorporate very useful strategies like keeping a notebook and writing things down or making sure you keep a calendar or if you're in a class, tape recording the class so you can listen to it later on. Okay. Those are the best kinds of things. And furthermore, looking at accommodation. So if an individual has a memory difficulty, if they're at work, can the, the work environment accommodate somebody with a memory difficulty? So, you know, various kinds of things, perhaps tasks that require a lot of memory can be handled by another fellow employee or, or any other kind of thing like that. So, although there may be games and different strategies, you know, memory just isn't a muscle that can be retrained like other muscles in our body.
0: There are a lot of high-risk occupations, pilots, surgeons. You know, it's hard to give up the knife. It's hard to get out of the pilot's seat. What do you as a neuropsychologist do in your evaluation of these occupations, these professionals, to know whether or not it's safe for them to continue?
1: Well, this is something that's gaining increasing prominence in my field. That is the role of the neuropsychologist in making determinations about capacity to return to work, especially in individuals that are high-level professions like physicians or or something else like that. So we have various measures that might intimately relate to their day-to-day function. So if somebody is a neurosurgeon, perhaps, we certainly want to look at things like fine motor control, and we want to look at things like, like planning and organization that would certainly be involved in, in a neurosurgery. However, I have to say that there are times where there are individuals who have been doing something for so long, and their skills and abilities are so overlearned that sometimes our neuropsychological tests aren't always sensitive to what they do on a day-to-day basis. So we may say from the testing, you know, this person's got some difficulties with memory and paying attention, but lo and behold, in the the surgical suite, they're able to do their job just fine because they've been doing it for so long. So, you know, we need to be careful what we're examining, and we want to make sure that the instruments we have are useful and really picking up on some of the cardinal problems. But addition to the tests, we want to probably interview fellow employees to see if this person is really doing their day-to-day jobs and what kinds of things are they having difficulty in their day-to-day job. So we use the test as one part of an overall comprehensive evaluation.
0: Sounds like a neuropsychologist really has to be a bit of a detective, has to get out of the laboratory, out of the office and into the workplace or onto the field.
1: Certainly. Uh, I think we need to go beyond our office to examine a lot of these things. And that's one of the things that's so intriguing about the kind of work that I do. Every day is something different and we're looking at uh, information from various sources and trying to come up with a reliable and objective opinion about what may be going on with this person that hopefully will be useful to him or her in their capacity to return to work or some other functional uh, activity.
0: We're in the era of evidence-based medicine, and you're on the Practice Guidelines Working Group. Are there guidelines that you've developed, and maybe you're more involved with the guidelines for the practice of neuropsychology? But I'm thinking in terms of guidelines for driving a car, for instance. When does somebody reach the point when they shouldn't have a license? And does your association make recommendations, say, to state licensing bureaus?
1: I do know that the American Psychological Association, the American Academy of Neurology, have different consensus papers for the assessment of neurocognitive decline in older adults.
0: I guess what I'd like to know is, when would you take the keys away from your father <laughs> or your grandfather?
1: You know, that's one of the most difficult decisions to address in a dementia evaluation. And uh, as you might expect, you know, driving affords one, you know, such liberty and such independence. And I, I can't think of any other area that probably is causes as much dissension in a family as a decision to take the keys away from mom or dad. And, you know, all you can do is present the evidence to the family and say, you know, I have some real concerns about This individual's capacity to drive, but it's ultimately a family decision. But hopefully you do it, and they follow suit before something criminal happens, i.e., somebody with dementia driving and um, getting in an accident and and causing harm to someone else or to themselves.
0: If someone wants more information or would like to contact you or do more reading, is there something you could suggest?
1: The thing that I think is most helpful is the Alzheimer's Association. They have a lot of literature and, and resources for families and professionals to assist in discussion on whether the difficulties the older adult is having are are due to normal aging, or whether they're due to some kind of dementia. So I believe each state probably has their own Alzheimer's association, but that would be the place where I would direct uh, patients and physicians.
0: Thank you very much for being our guest today. We've been discussing the role of the neuropsychologist in the evaluation of dementia. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at reachmd.com.
1: Thank you for listening. I wish you a good day and good health.